name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, happy holidays to everyone. And uh, I get to share tonight on uh, step 11, um, probably a little bit of 10, and what that currently looks like for me and how I got there. Um, interesting thing about 11 is uh, most folks don't practice step 11, although we give it great lip service. Um, God separated me from alcohol June 23, 1988, and uh, my first six months into AA wasn't a healthy uh, uh residency here. It was uh, uh, sketchy at best. Um, I wasn't drinking. I was going to meetings and um, ran to meeting, to meeting, to meeting and looking for that golden cave, something that was going to ignite me. And um, it's kind of like the pot of gold was right in front of me and I kept looking down the block. Um, I bottomed out uh, almost six months to the day in Alcoholics Anonymous and um, I'm glad no one got in the way of my bottom, although they tried a few times and let me bottom out. Uh, and without picking up a drink, I was, uh, uh, again, at my wit's end in, in AA sober, and um, which is just as painful as when you're out there drinking and doing other things because I had no medicine to, to wash the night away. It was me and my mind which owned me. And the mind makes a great servant but a terrible master, and it was my God. Lots of times people tell me uh, when they're new in AA that uh, they don't believe in God. They have a problem with God or they're, they're proud atheists. And I just point to the fact that they've been worshiping their mind the longest time. They have no problem worshiping anything. The mind's been their God. Uh, and that's what was going on with me. It was full of the future. It was regrets with the past. And I couldn't be present. And uh, the drink was on me. And uh, I bottomed out and I found some teachers and they started taking me to the work and I start to uh, catch uh, this thing that they were talking about, this power called God. And I start to experience some ease and comfort for the first time in my life. And the external world didn't change. I was still broke. I was still doing these little sober jobs, mowing lawns, driving car service. I mean, whatever I can make a couple of bucks with. Uh, I still didn't have a lot of clothes. I had nothing. And I wasn't given permission to go home yet. So the external world looked the same, pretty much. But I wasn't on the inside. My internal condition was being changed by God's touch. And uh, I was suiting up and showing up and uh, getting to the my little altar, if you will, twice a day, in the morning on awakening and at night on retiring. And um, no one told me to, but to the gift of desperation, I found myself throwing myself at the mercy of God and begging to stay clean and sober and begging uh, uh, to make right what was so wrong in my life. And I didn't even know anymore. Um, relationships were the farthest thing from my mind. I didn't think I needed to be with anyone to be right. Thank God for that. A lot of us think if I only find him or her, everything's going to be great. That was removed. Going home was removed. Uh, making money was removed. I was trying to survive. I would say there's been about half a dozen times in my <clears throat> 25 years sober that um, I've had my back against the wall. And not knowing what the next day was even going to bring. And uh, thank God there was no drink in the middle of that. But my back's been against the wall. And when there was nowhere else to turn but back to God, uh, on my knees and asking for mercy, they've always turned out to be the most intimate moments with God. Um, The most productive moments with God. And the external world, again, didn't change. 
what changed was I got a GPS and I was able to navigate through this. Oh, what would God want me to do? What would God want me to do? What would God want me to do? Now, we can do that when we got 20 minutes sober. But the thing was, I was now believing in this power I was praying to. And I was not believing in me and my mind and my way of doing things. And I found out quickly, anytime I try to say, I'm going to figure it out, I'm practicing dishonesty, self-reliance, and I'm into unmanageability and fear. And so uh, through the gift of desperation, that started to happen for me. And uh, along the way, I start to feel a lot better. And I met some great teachers, some really great teachers that on my best day sober, when I can be very discerning, very insightful, very awake, I couldn't have picked the people that God put in my path. And they were these spiritual warriors who were showing up. And they told me about um, the neat thing about getting this work in the big book is it will ignite you. And everything will start to change, regardless if you're rich, poor, black, white. If externally nothing changes, your insides will change. But the thing we, I had to be careful for, they warned me, my elders warned me, about the reemergence of ego. And um, I, I have an article here, but I'm, I'm not even gonna, I'm not getting moved to read it, so I'm going to leave it. But uh, Harry Tebow, uh, one of uh, the folks who helped AA so much, a non-alcoholic psychiatrist, was the guy who blew the doors open for us to expand into treatment centers, into detoxes, into hospitals. He was so credible. And one of his patients, uh, two of his patients actually, one in particular, who could not get sober. He threw everything possible at this guy. And the guy kept drinking. And out of desperation, he sent him to AA. And the guy came back sober. And he was made new. And that was a convincer for him. He saw the walk. His, uh, his walk became his talk, if you will. And uh, he went to his uh, uh, other doctors and, 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 and medical folks and listen, these guys in AA got something that we don't have. And what Harry Tebow goes on to talk about in a lot of his writings is this thing called reemergence of ego, where the ego will reconstruct. And the sad thing is, you don't know when it's happening. Everyone else sees it, but we can't see it. No matter how much we try to investigate ourselves, the self-inquiry is, is futile because we can't see it. The ego disguises itself. And it looks like this. Um, the 11th step is out the window. I talk a good game, but I'm not really praying. I'm not reading any kind of scripture. I'm not reading the big book. I'm not reading anything, basically. I'm going to meetings and trying to sound profound. There is no such thing as a nightly review. In fact, I don't even know what that is anymore. Uh, meditation, that's for people who are Buddhists and monks. We don't do that in AA. That's a lie. Okay. And so my amends list is not completed. I'm not doing a spot check during the day. And I talked about this last week. And we quickly go backwards through the steps. And I'm an untreated drunk. And what's really scary, if I'm around here a while, I know how to navigate around AA. I know when to drop some pearls of wisdom on some old information, old experience. I had people think I'm really got it together. And I really don't. I'm completely untreated. I'm lonely. I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear. My ego is doing a thinking for me, doing a seeing for me, doing a speaking for me, being for me. But when I look in the mirror, I see gold. I see Moses and everything's okay. I don't have a sponsor who could say, hey, what are you doing? What's, what's up with that? I'm accountable to me in my mind, so I'm in serious trouble. It's the reemergence of ego. Even though I've gone through the steps and experienced some of the depth of self, not complete depth of self, but some of the depth of self, defects of character, they, they can go to sleep for a while. They go dormant. God's the only power who can remove defects for his purpose. 
And my job is to surrender to this power. But if I get untreated, those defects start to work, wake up, and they bring their friends in. It's freezing in here, by the way. I don't know. It's really cold in here. <laughs> Holy smokes. I'm talking and shivering at the same time. I bet you the desert wasn't this cold. They didn't do the walk through Maine in December. And where was I? I was getting drunk. Um, defects of character. They may go dormant for a while. As I become untreated, they start to wake up and they bring other defects in. And then we start to try to work on our defects, which is futile as well, because lack of power is my dilemma. I can't work on defects. But if I'm around here a little while, my ego uh, knows how to do AA, knows how to speak, knows how to act around other AAs. And that is probably more dangerous, I've watched this happen, than a newcomer who comes in and screws up. Because the ego isn't that bad yet where they'll just tell you, I'm not doing good, I'm thinking about using. They can, the newcomer can be more honest than someone who's around here 15, 20, 30 years. But someone who's around 15, 20 years, 30 years, who's been through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, five years, who's been through the big book, the, a, the ego has reemerged, and they become dangerous to themselves and others. We start to have problems with pride and idolatry and worship people and worship other things quickly, forgetting that every A member has clay feet. There's only one, one power that's pure, one power that doesn't have clay feet, one power that's pristine, consistent, and constant, and that's God. But how can, I, how can I seek God? How can I pray to God when my ego convinces me I am God? All my sponsees have to do everything I tell them to do. And I will give a great talk. But when I get home, my house looks like a drunk's house. I drive like a maniac drunk. I'm character assassinating people. I'm up in my head all day long talking and gossiping about people who I just had dinner with. Who I just broke bread with. Who I say, I'm your best friend, you need me, give me a call and walk away. Oh, that guy's crazy. And the dialogue in head is, 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 is constant. And we pay attention to a lot of voices. That's not an awakened being. That's an untreated alcoholic. Now, civilians have the same problem. But my problem is when that stuff goes on, I will drink eventually over that. But when the ego reemerges, it convinces me, oh, I will never drink. When a drunk tells me I will never drink, they're closer to a drink than they think. Because as alcoholics in step one, we drink. We drink. And the ego will find a reason to get some medicine, to wash the night away, to justify it. And it won't only come uh, uh, with thunderbolts when things bad happen, or what we interpret as bad. They will come when we have a winning Powerball ticket, when she or he says, I love you, when the baby is born. The ego will say, well, let's go celebrate. Look at you. Everything's right. All the ducks are in a row reemergence of ego. And no one's immune to that, me included. There was a time in, 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 on this journey, I was sober about uh, eight years or so, and uh, some of us get into being uh, uh, like evangelic from the podium. And um, what's worse is we start to tell people you're wrong and I'm right and start to criticize and character assassinate the folks who aren't in this big book, the folks who aren't doing what you're doing. And rather than being a powerful example, we become uh, horrors of example. And I went, became a little self-righteous. But thank God for uh, sponsorship. Uh, I shared at a meeting one time, 
was step 67. I wasn't behind the podium. I was sharing from the floor. And I was in that place. And the ego had uh, taken over. And after I shared an old timer, Eddie, Eddie B, I think his name was, he looked over at me and he pointed at me like, like this. And he motioned to my sponsor. And after the meeting, we went outside. Everyone was smoking a cigarette. Eddie went up to my sponsor. Did you talk to him yet? So I didn't. I thought he was going to say, speak for my anniversary. You're so profound, Peter. <laughs> now, my first sponsor wasn't pretty with the language. He just about had a high school education. And uh, he had no problem dropping F-bombs all over me. And uh, he read me the riot act about some of the comments I made from the floor. I alienated myself. I separated myself from everyone else. And I was pointing fingers. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even see it. I didn't even hear it. And the ego was put back together again that quickly. Why that happens, I don't know. How it happens, I can tell you, it's when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. But some of us are doing all the work, and the ego still reconstructs itself. This is why sponsorship is so vital. Accountability to one person, at least, is so vital. And those of us who think we don't need a sponsor, we're ahead of a serious, serious trouble. Perhaps not tonight, maybe not in six months, not a year from now, but we're ahead of a trouble. Bill Wilson was accountable to Father Dowling. Bill Wilson was accountable while Ebby was sober. Dr. Bob was accountable to people. Our friendly members had sponsors. Chuck Chamberlain, Clarence Senate, they were accountable to people. These guys were giants in AA, but they were accountable to someone. I come along, I need to be accountable. All great spiritual teachers spoke to someone about stuff they weren't sure about. The inner workings of the mind, the disease and discomfort we have. As an alcoholic, I've talked about this many times, I'm flawed. The equipment's broke. My mind, my sponsor is, you're on a horse riding backwards. You're never going to ride forward. It just doesn't work like other people. I will make a major drama out of a broken shoelace and blame someone for it. And then justify my anger. That's not sane rational thinking. So I need to talk to someone about the broken shoelace or about my fear of fill in the blank. So they can kind of navigate me and get me right. And sometimes they need to be aggressive with us. And sometimes they just, we just need a hug. We got your back. It's okay. More often than not, I responded to the bulldogs in AA. That's why when I, some of the people I sponsor and even in my workplace, I can be pretty rough because it worked for me and I can't share outside my experience. And then there's a time to put your arm around someone and say, I got your back. It's okay. All of this stuff leads up to step 11. It isn't about just practicing mechanics. Many folks know mechanics, know this big book better than I do, better than many. I don't want to have a cup of tea with them because all they know, they're mechanics specialists, they're big book lawyers. But what the book ought to do, like any religious or spiritual piece of literature, is that information needs to become internalized. So I am the book. It's who I be now. So I may not dot every I and cross every T, but I'm a direct reflection of this power called God. I'm a direct reflection of this book. I'm a direct reflection of any religious or spiritual piece of information. I don't need to remember to be kind and loving and tolerant and patient. It's what God gave me at birth, and that's who I am now. But knowing I'm going to fall short from time to time. I'm going to make the mistake. I'm going to be intolerant. I'm going to criticize because I'm broken. That's not a cop-out. That's just the way it is. But when I have a great God, a forgiving God, a merciful God, that I can go and say, I screwed up today. I was a little unkind to Joe. 
We'll go make amends and fix it. Am I in the willingness of forgiving others? I, know, I don't know about you, but for me, when I go to God or I come to you and say, forgive me for what I've done, I want to be right now forgiven immediately. Immediate, no waiting. Yet, when people come to us for an amends or forgiveness, we're going to think about it. Let them suffer just a little bit. I'll get back to you. That's just arrogance. I'm just wondering, and I don't want to break a tradition, what the planet would look like if people really practiced love and forgiveness. What this planet would look like. And how much less character assassination we would have of people of different colors, different religions, different backgrounds, and it goes on and on and on. And bury the hatch and let's get on with our life, huh? We do that in AA too. We become warring theologians. Right in AA. That guy, he's not in the big book. Don't talk to him. That guy's in the book, big book. Keep him out. Don't ask him to speak. We do it in AA. There's a great expression, charity starts at home, love starts in AA, because then I can take it out there. And I can be tolerant of the intolerant ones. I can be forgiving of the non-forgiving ones, and there's a lot of them. This is like the school where we get something. We are fed in AA, and my job is now to take that and feed other people because out there is out there. It's insane out there. So what I need to do is get my GPS in here, my, my God center in here, not me centered. So once I leave here, we're kind and loving for the most part, and we lean on each other. What happens when I leave this meeting tonight? What happens when I'm in Publix or on 95 or wherever I am? When people break your hearts, they disappoint you or just hate you for who you are. How do we navigate through that? I mean, all you have to do is watch CNN for 10 minutes and say, the planet's crazy. It's insane. How am I going to deal with this? Because I'm part of that. We all are. How do we do that? Step 11 has fed me over and over and over again to navigate to that, even with my shortcomings and falling short. Because at the end of the day, he's in charge. No one else. And so we seek, with the desperation for drowning man or woman, God's will, not my will. And fear comes when I try to inflict my will on God. God, listen, you've got to give me this, because after all, look at me, I'm great. I've done so much work for you, now feed me. Give me this, let them do that. That's when I run into trouble, that's when any of us are running into trouble. Step 11 is purely about seeking God's will here. And the question I get often is, how do I know the difference between my will and God's will? Well, first thing is, I know what God's will is not. <laughs> she needs a sponsor. She's new. I should go sponsor her. And the quiet voice says, no, you don't. Because there's motives. We know what God's will is not. Very often, God's will is usually an inspiration, intuitiveness, just a rightness in us. It's a movement, it's a rhythm to speak or say or, or do something, and sometimes nothing. And there's very little, if any, stress, anxiety, fear, covering my tracks, manipulation. There's none of that going on. It's pure. And it feels foreign because it's new, because I'm so used to being a liar, a cheat, and a thief. So I step into God's, God's realm of purity, honesty, and selfishness and love. This feels a little uncomfortable. Well, sure it does. I'm killing self and ego right now. Then it becomes a way of life. And our book talks about a way of living, a way of life, where the uncommon becomes common and common becomes uncommon. I can't go back to lying, cheating, and stealing anymore. It's way too painful. The results of step 11. I think I mentioned drinking twice so far, huh? Because by now the drink problem has been removed. 
or any other substance, if I'm truly in this 10, 11, and 12. It's not about fighting a drink or a drug or, or any of the other isms. Sex, food, money, whatever it is. That stuff's part of my alcoholism. If I've been thorough in this work and I've landed in 10, 11, and 12 in the sunlight of the spirit, that stuff, it might come by like the clouds path, but I'm not hooking in and following it. The sky don't chase the clouds around the planet. Clouds come in and they go. Same thing with thoughts, compulsions to do things. They just pass because I'm right with God. Now, part of this 11th step is meditation. It's the first practice to go, to go by the board with many of us. Maybe not this room, but in general. I've been around long enough to hear the horror stories. Meditation is, you know, driving in my car, meditating. That's not meditating. In fact, if you're meditating while you're driving, let me know. I won't get on the road. <laughs> How do you meditate and drive? How do you pray and drive? Dialogue with God we should do all the time. Conscious contact, constant contact with God. Turn in in order to go out. I should be in dialogue with God all day long. I tell newcomers, pray to God. He likes the sound of strange voices, you know. <laughs> Praying in the car, that's not the 11th step. Or the 11th step would have said, when you get in your car, do prayer meditation. It says on awakening. I don't think I'm in my car on awakening unless I'm homeless. <laughs> He got it. He's not even part of us. I was in Nebraska a few weeks. I told a joke. Ten minutes later, they left. A little slower. <clears throat> on awakening. On awakening. Which means on awakening. Now, here's what God did for me. And at the risk of sounding pretentious, my hunger for God is, was great from the get-go. I didn't have to get there. And I was given some instructions. It fueled that. My hunger to know this God is great still. I like the effect produced by God. And what God did for me was early in recovery, I woke up one morning and I didn't go another day while you're doing this to me. I opened my, never forget it. I opened my eyes and I said, thank you, God, for this day. Please keep me clean and sober today. And it was a first conscious contact with, prayer, with God on awakening. I didn't do Facebook. I didn't go to make 12 pots of coffee, 14 cigarettes, and talk on the phone and do, walk the dog and then come back, do a little prayer, and off I go. Spend two hours trying to get the suit and the shirt to match and five seconds with God. That's not giving attention to God. It should be the most important event of my day. For me, it is. I'll, on awakening... I go hit my mat. I have a, a little altar created with a meditation mat, all my AA stuff and my saints and all my religious thing. I'm a Catholic. I got some of that stuff. I got things from other religions because God's God to me, just different roads to get there. And then I'll go about my morning and I'll do my stuff. And usually around 8 o'clock, I'm hitting the mat one more time before I go out the door because the business I work in, you better be ready. <laughs> Now, I'll talk to God on the way to work, in my car. Okay, God, here we go. But that's not real prayer like the 11th step is talking about. Some of us, the way we pray, it looks like this. Do you ever try to speak to someone about something important, and they have their phone, and they're doing this, and they're looking up every once in a while? Oh, really? You, 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 you're, you're dying? I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Wait, what? You're going to the hospital? Wait, one second. Let me hit this. 
that ever happened to you? Do you want to strangle them, or do, what do you want to do? This is what we do with God. Dialogue with God is great, but prayer is a little different. It should be a sacred moment, a sacred event where nothing gets in the way. And sometimes we're fortunate enough to pray with somebody. Hold hands and pray. That's giving attention to God. Not while I'm doing 40 other things and just checking in with God or I'm driving in my car and I pray while I'm in the shower. That's just talking to God. That's not prayer, according to my book. Nowhere in scripture that says, while you're in the shower, seek God. And then after I'm done with prayer, I, I do meditation. My meditation times have evolved over, 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 over the years. The first time I meditated was about two minutes, and it felt like I was meditating for two years. It was forever, because the mind, it's interesting, when we stop everything going to meditation, the mind keeps going. It's like stopping short with a bunch of packages on your front seat. The car stops, and the packages keep going. We go into meditation, the mind keeps going, and we realize how noisy we've been. You want to see, you want to, when we experience silence, we realize how noisy we've been. When we experience silence, we realize how much dialogue is going on. And it feels foreign and uncomfortable. And the mind says, that's enough of this, let's move on. But something happens when we kind of get into the groove, into the rhythm of meditation. We really depend upon it. And the sacred silence. Something we can't create. That's where we come from. I can't create that which already exists. And when we start to practice the sacred science of meditation, the reason why it feels so fulfilling and right and nourishing, because it's my natural, our natural state of beingness. Noise interrupts everything. Even me doing this talk tonight. I'm asked to do a talk, so I give a talk. But it'd be really cool if I, if I got quiet for a minute and we just got still and just listened to our breath. But many of us would get incredibly uncomfortable because we're listening to the mind rather than God breathing through us. But after a while, we learn how to detach or unhook from this predator called the mind and just pay attention to the spirit in every one of us. It's interesting in AA, they tell me, and uh, uh, in my religious community, tell me how God's is forgiving God no matter what I've done. court of law feels a little different about it people will feel different about it but this walk on earth is a quick stop it's a, a vapor and we're out there's another place and another being we need to be seeking this is a quick stop here and I'm going to spend this quick stop angry, resentful fearful, warring anger it goes on and on and on my sponsor, Mark, would tell us what he, he would tell me, what are you doing about the dash? I had no idea what he's talking about. I said, what is a dash? He's go to a, a graveyard. There's a headstone. The day God brought you here, a number. And the day God took you home, a number. In the middle is a two-inch dash. That was your life. Two inches. Two-inch dash. Your entire life. Whether you're 40, 50, 100. Boom. In and out. What are you going to do about it? And we have a tremendous opportunity in Alcoholics Anonymous. To really, when the time comes, say, wow, what a ride that was. No regrets. Did it right, and I'm leaving clean the way it came in. So I spent time in meditation. And the thing about meditation is the posture and breath. Every book I've studied talks about two things, among other things, two consistent things, posture and breath. 
And I go to some AA meetings and I do, let's do a two-minute meditation, three-minute meditation. We do it with my home group. Two minutes. Two minutes. You can't even smoke a cigarette in two minutes. But we throw that out. And very often I watch. Not to take in, well, I'm taking inventory. <laughs> I want to know my guys what their posture looks like. I want to know the guys I sponsor what their posture looks like. And I can read someone's struggle if you just watch people meditate. Legs crossed, arms folded. That's not a meditation posture. So I say either they weren't taught or they don't care. Books on the lap, things like that. It's not the way you meditate. In an ideal world, we would have very loose clothes on with no shoes, no sandals, hopefully no jeans, maybe just some light, loose clothes. The radio's not on. MTV's not on. I'm not listening to Snoop Dogg. I mean, there's nothing going on. It's quiet. And some of us need music and candles and incense. That's all nice. That's all good. But you don't need that to meditate. In fact, sometimes music, meditation music, incense and candles, as nice as that is, can be a distraction for us to keep us from experiencing pure silence. Got meditation music because I don't have to be silent. I know my candles are burning. I'm really focused on the candles rather than my mind. So it becomes actually a distraction. Can I meditate with nothing? Just me on a mat and that's it. And just work with breath. So posture. Posture. Relaxed. Very often when newly meditating, the shoulders are up here. Because I'm tight. The world's on my back. I'm trying to keep it up. I'm tense. I'm fearful. I'm angry. But I'm going to be Moses for a half hour. And I've heard people get attached to the time in meditation. It becomes a contest. A spitting contest. I did 20 minutes, I did 25, I did 45, every day I'm doing an hour, I'm up at 3 a.m., I'm up at 2 a.m. Time out. Book says God doesn't make two hot terms to those who seek him. So today might be a half hour, maybe tomorrow he's sitting for 10 minutes and God says, hey, I need you here. The idea is I'm going in and in doing I succeed, but I give time in meditation every day to my God. I give a few minutes at night, and the other thing I've been moved to do, and this is old now, it's, it's been a bunch of years, uh, I got moved one day to go pray and meditate and work with the religious practice, work with these beads that I have. I carry them all the time. And I just, it just takes me 10 minutes to go through these beads, not even to go through these beads. That's my prayer, a bunch of prayers involved in this. And then I just sit, I will do it in my car, park my car somewhere, I'll go into a parking lot, I'll, I, I don't care. It's a 10-minute, 15-minute process at max in the middle of the day just to get centered, not to lose my home base. And then I go out again. And there's times when I'm incredibly tired. I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I, I've got to get home. But I will still do that because I can't go without it. I need God's food. I need the nourishment. I need the soul food. So my book tells me this that I shouldn't be shy in the matter of prayer. Better men than, we, than me are using it constantly. So am I shy about talking about prayer in an AA meeting? Am I shy about talking about God in an AA meeting? Am I shy about talking about God outside of AA? Because God's not popular right now. This country's becoming secular. God's a bad word. It's popular to knock God. Can I talk about God to those, when I'm to other people? 
how important God is to me. I'm going to deny God. I want God here, but I'll deny him out there. I'm a hypocrite. Am I going to offer the word of God to people in AA or not? If not, I'm a hypocrite. I got to live with that. No one else. It says it works if I have the proper attitude to work at and work at it. What kind of attitude are they talking about? Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Simple. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite valuable suggestions. When they wrote this book, they were just sober a short time. Just a couple of paragraphs, page and a half maybe with 10, a couple of pages and 11, and yet is that powerful. They could have gone on for pages and pages and pages. To the point, they bulleted suggestions that we do. AA members have uh, uh, surrendered to this. And if they just follow what step 11 says, they will have profound changes in our, we will have profound changes in our life. Those, this, this utopia is certainly not out there, although we think it is in a paycheck and a new car and a relationship. Those are wonderful things. But the real inner piece, the utopia, is right in here. And the big book says, I'm going to show you how to get in there. You ever hear the story about the, the uh, three guys who found the most precious gift in the world, happiness? And they wanted to hide it from man. And one guy says, put it on a high mountain. They'll never find it. And the guy's no to learn to climb mountains. Another guy says, put it at the bottom of the ocean. Right? They'll never find it. The guy says, no, they'll learn how to find it. The third one says, well, find, put happiness where man will never look for it. And that's inside of himself. And so we go to meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings, and we're still restless and we're discontented. The great reality is deep down within, my book says. It says, when I retire at night, I constructively review my day. This isn't about beating me up. Let's take a look. Let's build off of the mistakes we made today. Where was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, and afraid? They assume I was, because they know me. Do we owe an apology to someone? Have I kept something to myself which should be discussed with another person once? This is the one we get in trouble. This is sins of omission. I can't tell anyone about that. Why not? Because my ego won't let me. This is why we have sponsors. If there's a name for it, it's already been done. Probably better. Was I kind and loving toward all? What could I have done better? Was I thinking of myself most of the time? Alcoholics, that's what we do. We think of ourselves all the time. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? I mean, it's how we operate. Was I thinking of what I can do for others, of what I could pack into the stream of life? So I take this inventory. Then my book gives me a warning not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection. And if I do too long, what happens is my ego's in the way. I can't believe I made a mistake today. Oh, my God. That's all ego. They put erases on pencils because they knew I was going to school. I'm going to make mistakes. That's why we got God. What it says to do, if I drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, I stay in there too long, I'm supposed to be an effective agent for God. If I do that, my book says, I diminish my usefulness to others, which is why got me, God got me sober. Not so I can own stuff. God got me sober to save my life and now use me to get someone else. But if I'm consumed with me and all of my stuff again, that's what newcomers do. And we expect it. But we got this big book and we got God. Okay, screwed up. Got to fix it. Go fix it. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep riding. Because if I'm not pursuing God, my illness is pursuing me. 
And that's all it needs is for me to sit back and say, oh, my God, I screwed up. I can't believe it. All these years sober. Um, I was late on my IRS tax returns. It's the end of the world. I can't believe I did this. Oh, my God. I'm going right to hell for this one. It's really okay. It's really okay. That's why I have extensions. That's why we invented the word forgive, because I screwed up. Can you forgive me? What do I do when I wake up? Wake up late, run out the door with a cup of coffee in my hand. Okay, God, I got you. Okay, we're going to go. And you got yesterday on you. Weren't too good Monday. Tuesday, you got a hangover from Monday. And your day's not right. And you're looking for something to to get right. So you got to take time off to run to a meeting just to get right. That's bondage. I got to get there rather than I get to go. Spiritual muscles about now. I love the words I get to. I get to work. When I get to do inventory, I get to pray. I get to meditate. I get to see God. Where else would I want to be? In God's presence. And I get to do that in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And then I get to walk with God all day long. And if I'm right in here, no matter how twisted up somebody is, I know deep down in there is their great reality of their God. So I can cut through all the insanity, not take what they're doing personally. And somewhere in there is just as much God in them as me. And when I criticize and condemn you, I'm telling God, you screwed up. Like I'm a God bigger than God. And people will annoy us. People will, will get us angry. Okay, what are we going to do about it? Forgive them for they know not what they do is what one man said. You know, I love the quote before. How's it go? Before I take the speck out of your eye, let me take the beam out of mine. Hmm? Welcome to the NFL. On awakening, I think about the 24 hours ahead. I consider my plans for the day. Then it says, hold on, <laughs> before you do anything, because in about five minutes an alcoholic's going to take over this day, what do we do? We go to the boss. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. Because the book knows once the thinking turns the engine on, that's it, look out. My sponsor sober 40 years. And he wakes up. And he says, God, before this alcoholic starts his day, please take over right now. Because he knows what he's capable of doing. May not be that bad that day, but eventually, we don't pray Monday, we don't pray Tuesday, we don't pray Wednesday, check in Thursday, maybe a little check in Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and suddenly we're off the chain and we're hurting people. I'm infecting other people. So on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours a day uh, ahead. I consider my plans for the day. Before I begin, I ask God, I go to the boss, let him direct my thinking. Especially ask that, uh, asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. That's alcohol. That's untreated alcoholism. A little lie here and there ain't going to hurt anyone. Really? How do I know? It's killing me. But my ego says... You got Teflon. You're Teflon Don. You're good. You can lie all you want. They can't lie. Isn't it funny how we can lie, but you lie to me? I'm not talking to you forever. My sponsor says if I lie in this area of my life, I am a liar. Tomorrow's April 15th. That's rigorous honesty tomorrow night. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with, with assurance. 
for after all, God gave me a brain to use. Watch this. My thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when my thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Thinking, thoughts. Thoughts and thinking. So it's not like I I, I stop thinking, but it's being uh, uh, directed by God. I can be uh, better at telling God's will and my will. God gave me a brain to use. I can make plans. I can consider my plans for the day. I'm starting to think a renewal of this mind through this metanoia, this purging, this emptying out of me, the death of self for successful living. So now this brain that God gave me works, and this mind is no longer my master. God gives me intuitiveness, thoughtfulness, consideration, open-mindedness, willingness, love, charity, impeccable with my word, things like that. And suddenly, I'm moving through the day. Make a mistake, I make amends, keep moving. Learn from it. What could I have done better? It tells me at night. It may seem like a lot of work at the beginning. It really isn't when it becomes a way of living. But if you think about how we're living, even in AA, untreated, compared to following a few simple instructions that will become internalized, we don't need to remember to be kind and loving. It's who we be. This is like kissing a newborn on the cheek compared to the way we're living, untreated in AA, when we're not drinking. And when I'm acting out in any way, that's my drink. I need relief. I need something other than God right now to make me feel okay. Here comes the drink. Here comes the drug. Here comes the acting out sexually. Food, money, whatever. I need something because I'm dis-ease. Again, I'm in a place of dis-ease and discomfort. And all I have to do is turn back to God, but some of us have to bottom out. Some of us will drink and some of us will die until, and that's where we'll find ease and comfort. That's where we'll finally get some freedom when we die. And we'll go out on a drink or an overdose or whatever it might be. That's what we do. That's what I do. It tells me I may not be able to determine which course to take. What do I do? Back to God. Ask God for inspiration, intuitive thought or a decision. God, what do I do? God, what do I do? God, what do I do? Then I can turn to my sponsors. Listen, I'm struggling with this. What do you think I should do? Yes, seek counsel. You know, how's the car running? Consistency, accountability, responsibility, C-A-R. How am I doing with that? Consistently calling my sponsor. Accountable to my sponsor, maybe a small group, group of folks. Responsible. I show up for my phone calls. I show up for my meetings. I show up when I'm supposed to. I'm not running the show. In fact, my life is none of my business. It's God's business, and it's taking pretty good care of it. I'm not going to screw with this. Although my mind says, you know, you can, you can do a little bit on your own. But, I, you know, let my walk be my talk because Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock, I'm on the phone. Every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, I'm on the phone with my sponsor. And sometimes I'm asked to do workshops on Wednesday, and I go to my sponsor and say, listen, I got asked to do 12 weeks on a Wednesday. He says, that's going to interrupt us for three months. Can you pass? I say, okay. I call the max. I can't do it. Some folks say, what do you mean? After all these years of sobriety, that's right. He's my teacher. When did I get bigger than my teacher? I'm the student. Even when I sponsor, I still approach that as a student with a beginner's mind. I teach, but always as a student. Sometimes I can learn from someone with 30, 40 days. If I think I can't, boy, do I got an ego problem.
My God entrusted a handful of folks who were newbies to carry a message. They weren't carrying a message for years. And he says, I'm going to turn it over to you. My God got a bunch of roughnecks who knew and said, go. How willing are we to find God, to experience God? How willing am I to get well if I'm sober a while? What does my 11-step currently look like? Do I have an 11-step practice? If I'm making you uncomfortable from the bottom of my heart, that's not my intent. But if I'm making you uncomfortable because you don't have an 11-step practice and the ego's getting really, really squirrely. If you have an 11-step practice and someone talks about it and you say, that's different, I never heard that. I wonder what I can do, maybe I can do more. That's good. Taking notes, I want to learn. Not from me, from anyone. But if I'm getting really uncomfortable about now after this talk, and I can't wait for this talk to end, it's because I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and I just ripped the covers off the ball. Uh-oh. Okay, we got to close? We close? <laughs> James broke into a cold sweat. <laughs> okay. Okay, a couple of more things. As we go through the day, this is where we're, this is our day now. Now, step 10 is about walking around. 11 is getting us up and ready. So it's kind of like they bleed into each other. Okay. But 11 specifically, prayer, meditation, what to do during my day. And now I'm in my day and step 10 tells me certain things to do. But it says in step 11, as I go through my day, I pause when? Agitated or doubtful. So the book assumes I may get a little agitated or doubtful from time to time. Pause is a comma, which means a minute, a beat, maybe a while. Pause. Hold on a second. What do I do? It tells me I go back to God. I ask for the right direction. God, I, I don't know what to do here. Call up the sponsor. Maybe some support friends and say, listen, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm a little rudderless right now. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's being teachable. That's humility at work. It says I constantly remind myself I'm no longer running the show. Humbly saying to myself, each day thy will not mine be done. That's a prayer I work with. Father, your will not mine be done. Show me what relationships to have and how to have them. Remove the hypocrisy from me. Keep my soul from being poisoned. Let me be an effective agent for you. Your will, not mine, be done. Even when I'm looking at some uncomfortable things, financial stuff, maybe health stuff, maybe job uncertainty. And so I go to God. Let me carry out your will. Your will, not mine, be done. And here's what I found out. Many, many times in my life, uh, sober, uh, there were things where I wish God would just pay a little close attention and read my script. Because <laughs> I'm going to be rich and successful tomorrow. And if he would just put his blessings on it, I don't have to work anymore. In fact, the IRS won't even ask me for tax money anymore. It doesn't be good. And God has some other plans. And I start to say God's not paying attention. And maybe I start to have doubt and skepticism about this God. After all, I've done some great work. Where's my reward? I'm in a little trouble. And sometimes when <clears throat> I think my will isn't being followed out and God's not paying attention to me, he's keeping me out of trouble. And so I get frustrated and I argue with God and I debate with God and God's going to do what God's going to do. Fast forward three months, six months, nine months, when everything lands right and I go, it's a good thing I didn't get what I wanted. It's a good thing God wasn't paying attention to my insanity because we look back and say, what were you thinking? And I've shared this story very often. I'll close with this. 
Uh, it's going on four years uh, now, about. Um, I was working in Texas, breaking my, my back for this company, giving them my, my blood, and they dropped me like a bad habit. And greed was their motivator. And I'm out of work, and I'm wondering, God, there are about 40 men who came through my doors who were chronic relapse, who were sober now. You took care of them. You made me help them. What's the deal? How could you just, like, say, that's it, you're unemployed? And where am I going to get hired at my age? But God had a plan in mind. So I did some work there. The work there was complete. I couldn't see this. Then he picks me up and puts me in South Florida and going to work for a place that I adore working for, doing what I love to do. And then putting certain people in my life. I look back and say, great. It was a great thing I got let go in Texas. I would still be stuck in Texas. <laughs> near Brownsville but it, I mean look where I live look where I work so it's always darkest before the dawn so I've learned the hard way let go and let God we use that a lot in AA but we don't know what it means let go just let God do the driving let me be a willing passenger and all I do is suit up and show up and serve others serve, serve, that's what we do in AA love and service, that's all I got, peace peace